Hello and welcome. This is Ron Cohen. I'm a tax partner with the firm of Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and Company, CPAs in beautiful downtown Fremont, California. Today's show, which is dated August 1st, 2022, and I'll get into in just a bit why those dates are, you'll see why they're so important. Uh, we're going to cover the proposed Inflation Reduction Act. And um, and um, that's going to be pretty much it. We're going to also go through a little bit of why tax computations are a multivariable computation, as they're finding out as they score or determine how much the Inflation Reduction Act is going to cost or save. Okay, so let's go through a few preliminary here, some caveats. Uh, take no reliance on anything you hear in this podcast. Uh, if you need to get a formal opinion, you got to come talk to us, show us documents, uh, give us the facts of the situation. We can research it, come back to you with a formal memo, and then you can rely on it or uh, use it in a transaction. That goes for us and any other tax advisor. Very quick, uh, off-the-cuff, hearsay-type advice is very dangerous. Plagiarism is okay. We steal from the Internal Revenue Service, the regulations, all kinds of things we read. I try to give credit to where I'm getting information in this podcast and have uh, uh, links in the, in the show notes so you can read it from the horse's mouth. Uh, but uh, we're not writing any novels here. And uh, while I have, may have some original opinions, I don't have many original thoughts. <laughs> uh, no politics. While tax law is, is generated through a legislative process and there's some political uh, angling that goes on and getting a bill through, we're going to stay out of all the other general politics that's uh, so uh, unnerving in this country, certainly at this uh, last three, four, five years. All right. Um, we, in our return, in our office, CPA firm, we do about 13, 1400 tax returns. We do planning for all types of people from very rich high-tech executives to little old grandmothers. And uh, we offer family office services for the very wealthy with complex situations where they need a lot of hand-on help, hands-on help to manage their uh, multi-entity, multi-relative uh, empires. So we're happy to help if you need that kind of assistance also. I, for one, am no cheerleader for the tax system. I think the tax system is intrusive. It's tedious. It's onerous. It, uh, it's way overbearing. It takes way too much of your time. And uh, there's a better, more elegant way to do it. But we follow the law. And so with every tax return we do or planning exercise we engage in, we always try to get an A plus, not an A minus, not a B, not a C. Try to get an A, minus, a plus, A plus, uh, given the tax system that we have and try to keep our clients out of trouble. I also want to refer you to Alan Olson's podcast, American Dreams. You can just put in Alan Olson, American Dreams, on your on your um, uh, browser. Or you can go to our website, www.groco, that's G-R-O-C-O dot com. All this is in the show notes. Our phone number is 510-797-8661. I'm at extension 237. Uh, our office is about 12 miles north of San Jose and 35 miles south of San Francisco in the East Bay. Uh, happy to talk to anybody for 5, 10, 15 minutes, see if we can help each other. Um, I'd probably talk uh, for, for, for free at no charge for much longer than I should. 
so, all right. With that all said, let's uh, get a couple of things out of the way. Uh, corrections from last week. Uh, one, I said uh, Taiwan is about 10 miles off the Chinese coast. I have now Wikipedia'd it and uh, have uh, realized it's 80 miles off the Chinese coast. So I wanted to correct that. Secondly, I got a call from one of our listeners who um, was, a, was a, let's say, a student of mine in the past. And he listened to my uh, podcast from last week when I was fully in support of the CHIPS bill that has indeed been passed since we last talked um, and, and reminded me that, um, that I am a big endorser of the free market, free enterprise system. And so how come I was strongly, very strongly supporting uh, tax subsidies for the chip industry? Isn't that another form of corporate welfare? Well, 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 well. I uh, proudly say the student has become the teacher, <laughs> and I was, uh, in part, wrong. Um, my my perception with the chips bill was that over the last three, four decades, a lot of things have been offshored to Taiwan and indeed China and other places in the semiconductor industry. Uh, it's a it's a matter of national security for whatever the reasons they were offshored. They ought to be onshore, to which this uh, gentleman said, well, well, you know, why don't they just do a stock offering or float some bonds and pay for their own darn factories of fabs, you know, new fabs to be built in the U.S. Fair point. Fair point. These companies are doing well uh, and uh, have the capital resources to do it. I certainly uh, continue to agree that there needs to be some incentive, maybe some kind of limitation. Again, I'm a free market person, but uh, when you lose a basic commodity, you should have to put some kind of limitations. That's what the Department of Commerce, which is a complete failure in my view, is for, to make sure that we don't, uh, through free market processes, get into a situation where uh, a lot of our, our, our medical pharmaceuticals are made in China. Uh, a lot of our critical uh, semiconductors are made in Taiwan. Um, yeah, the rare earth minerals are a problem around the world. So anyway, I just wanted to say I at least admit to being in part wrong that the chips bill is a government taxpayer subsidy to a well-off well-funded uh and uh, a group of companies that have uh endless access to capital in the capital markets if they want to bring stuff back on shore they certainly have the capacity to do that my again my only angle on that would be but they should be made to uh and not always chasing the lowest wages around the world so uh, moving on here, uh, I wanted to talk about, again, why the dates are so important. In fact, the, the hours, what hour it is is so important. Uh, last week, we finished this uh, podcast, if you happen to have heard it. Uh, I did not send it out to uh, many of my clients, as I have a habit of doing, because within an hour after we finished taping uh, this podcast, the, um, the skinny-downed, revised version of the Build Back Better bill which has now been renamed the Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, came uh, got some new steam after uh, we spent a good 20 minutes talking about how it was, for the most part, dead. So it's back. It's back. And it, uh, an agreement was struck in uh, Congress between Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Schumer of New York, Manchin of West Virginia, uh, again, literally an hour after I finished talking. Of course, they're not watching me. They could care less, right? And um, 
We're going to go through that at length because it looks like it's a uh, now a new tax proposal uh, in part. There's also social programs and environmental programs in there uh, that has some legs. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through that. Um, it, this will get a little granular and boring, but um, I'm going to go through it. Now, uh, there's two parts of this. One is the sausage machine, right? You know, how these things go back and forth and negotiated, who gave up what. That's the sausage machine part. The other part is, well, what does the bill actually say? What is it going to do? So uh, let's go through some of the sausage machine first uh, to lay that out, and then we'll... Um, come back to uh, some of the specific provisions. Well, as you may recall, the Build Back Better bill uh, uh, earlier, uh, late last year, uh, died uh, and was not passed uh, because Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Christia Sinema, sorry if I uh, mispronounced the first name there, her first name, um, was um, um, said they are two Democrats, they're going to vote against it, and therefore there's not 50 votes in the Senate there wouldn't be a tie. If there's no tie, then Kamala Harris, vice president, doesn't get the vote to break the tie. Need a simple majority if the bill's going through as a reconciliation item, as opposed to a tax bill, which normally needs 60 votes. You only need 51 votes as a reconciliation item. I spoke at length about why I think that stinks, the reconciliation process, because it's morphing tax bills into appropriation bills, and that's not fair. But both parties have used that mechanism in the past. That still doesn't make it right. Shouldn't be. Should have to get 60 votes to pack, pass a tax bill because, as uh, we all know, a tax bill is the awesome power of the federal government or any, any. Uh, well, let's talk about the federal government only here. A tax bill in the federal government is the awesome power of the federal government to say, you must give me this money. You must compute it this way on these forms. You must follow all the procedures for mailing in or e-filing those forms on these dates. And if you don't send in the forms with and uh, deposit the money or write the checks or whatever, do all that, we can send people to knock on your front door and uh, uh, take your stuff and uh, drain your bank accounts. Uh, so it's an awesome, awesome power. And that's why uh, way back it was decided, you know, a tax bill, that shouldn't need 51 votes in the 100 member Senate with 50 states, two senators each, that should use, need 60 votes because it's such an awesome power. And uh, then they came up with this reconciliation um, game of, uh, I don't remember exactly when it came into be, but I don't like it, never will, and I'll just move on. Okay, so um, uh, before we get into the, the, the details, one of the, again, in the sausage-making part of this is uh, – Senator Sinema of Arizona, according to Politico, uh, was uh, on the floor of the Senate at the time that, as you'll hear, Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer came up with this new agreement uh, and, and uh, was asked by a political reporter, well, what do you think of the new agreement with uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer? To which he said, I know nothing about it. I'm paraphrasing, but it was clear that she was not included in the negotiations. And, you know, if you want someone to vote for something when you need each and every vote, uh, maybe, maybe they should have thought of that a little bit. So the point is um, that, that this thing's way up in the air because a key player was surprised standing on the floor of the Senate that a new bill had been agreed to, of which she was not clearly not involved because 
her, her, and then again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her comment was, well, you know, what are you talking about? What's happened? What's going on? So, um, Senator Manchin didn't feel, uh, the need to either call her staff or even walk on down to her office and give her the heads up. So we'll see, we'll see if she agrees more on that in a bit. Okay. So the inflation reduction act, I've put a link to the entire documentcloud.org document. So you can read it just like everyone else. Um, and, um, although I don't advise it because unless you're trying to put yourself to sleep, uh, tax bills are awful to read. And what I have, uh, been frustratingly learned over the years is if you read the legislative language, you'll actually read the bill, even when it's passed, um, uh, you read the bill and there's so much jargon that is side references to other things that you can read something in its clear past language and not understand what it means. You have to me understand the legislative history of all these other bits that they refer to, like the, the most important part of a code section might be its reference to another code section. Well, if you're like most human beings and don't have code sections memorized, you have to go and look at the other code section and figure out what that really means. And I swear to God, in some cases, that other code section refers to other code sections. And so this is where the uh, tax writers earn their pay in the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee because they have their little flow charts and they actually understand the legislative history of this web of cross-references. Okay, well, so I've probably lost you, but I'll keep moving here. So uh, we're going to some of the details now of the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, hat tip to Deloitte who has a wonderful staff. They're probably up all weekend reading it, analyzing it, uh, cross-referencing it, uh, referring back to what had happened before, putting it in context. And so uh, I, we have linked to Deloitte's uh, update report in the show notes, and I'll give you a little bit of that now. The path forward for budget reconciliation legislation in the Senate took an unexpected turn this week when Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, Democrat of New York, and Senator Charles Manchin, Democrat West Virginia, unveiled the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, a $739 billion tax and spending package that includes some targeted corporate and individual tax increases, a large increase in funding for the Internal Revenue Service, incentives to promote climate change mitigation and clean energy, and provisions to promote health care affordability. Again, uh, Senator Sinema, right, uh, now I'm quoting it correctly. She, when she was told that there had been an agreement between those two other senators on the floor of the Senate, she said, what happened? So we know she wasn't consulted, and she's a key vote. She, she voted against the Build Back Better bill uh, back around Christmas. She has a tremendous, tremendous input in this piece of legislation, Manchin said on NBC's Sunday News, she basically insisted no tax increases. We've done that. And she was very, very adamant about that. And I agree with her. This is Senator Joe Manchin, who left Senator Sinema on the floor of the Senate saying, what happened? Schumer and Manchin unveiled the text of their proposal on July 27th, just hours after announcing that they had an agreement on a plan to replace the Build Back Better legislation that had been stalled in the Senate since last December. 
That announcement came nearly two weeks after Manchin appeared to walk away from the behind-the-scenes negotiations and Senate Democratic leader seemed resigned to a moving to, to, to moving a considerable narrow, narrower reconciliation measure focused chiefly on health care and lacking a significant tax title, right? So well, what's, the, what's the big, what is the big tax change, right? The, 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 in 2017, President Trump's last tax bill was called the Tax, uh, tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, now they, they found a name for this, the, uh, the uh, Inflation Re- Reduction Act. Okay, well, that's good. Explaining his thinking in negotiations with Schumer in recent days, Manchin told reporters on July 28th that contrary to the conventional belief, I never walked away. I've never walked away from anything, uh, unquote. He said that his concerns with the broader bill being discussed in recent months, which called for significantly more tax hikes than the measure he had put forward with Schumer, was the potential that it could increase the recent spike in inflation. In quotes, the bottom line was inflation scared the bejesus out of me at 9.1%. Close quotes, Manchin told Punchbowl News, referring to the recent report that inflation increased to 9.1% in June compared to the same period last year. Manchin added he and his staff scrubbed everything and deleted any provision they thought could be inflationary from the agreement that had been under discussion. Well, okay, you know, I, I, he's a senator. I appreciate what he's doing. One has to ask, why is this one senator from West Virginia, you know, the, the pivot point on uh, what happens or doesn't happen? But that's the way our government is right now with, with basically a 50-50 split. One person can, uh, can uh, swing it one way or the other. Um, at a high level, the new agreement between Schumer and Manchin includes revenue-raising provisions that would include a 15% gap income minimum tax on certain large corporations, modifying the tax treatment of income from carried interest, that's very big in the Bay Area, and provide a special allocation of $80 billion over 10 years, $80 billion over 10 years, that's $8 billion a year, to fund IRS compliance and enforcement efforts. So that's $8 billion a year which is about 10, less than 10% of the IRS budget. It's pretty small. Uh, and they're so far behind in funding what they have to do. I, you know, I give credit where credit's due. They're, they haven't been funded the way they should be in many years. So uh, that $8 billion a year probably uh, doesn't even catch them up. Uh, and it doesn't. I know it doesn't catch them up to even being even where they should be, given the size of the population, all the tasks they have to do annually. Moving on, a one page summary from Schumer Manchin notes that there are no new taxes on families making 400000 or less and no new taxes on small businesses. Well, I'm uh, one of uh, probably hundreds, uh, and I'm just reading the Senate Finance Committee report. That is a non-truth. So the statement that it does not cause any new tax on people under $40,000 is a non-truth, which is a very polite way of saying what I really want to say. I will also say that, you know, the, this, this is what I was mentioning. The tax returns are a multivariable computation, right? You change a number here, and that increases a, a limitation on another number on the itemized deduction, and it has an impact on your AMT calculation, and it has an impact on your net investment income calculation, which is subject to another limitation 
And all these things go in and out and in and out. So even I would step back and say, you know, you're never going to get it perfect. Uh, is if you have an immaterial, immaterial increase in tax on the low level uh, of income because of some of these uh, multivariable calculations, hey, okay, they did the best they can. That's not what's happened here. You can go look at the charts yourself. Um, this is uh, now where it goes from a tax law to, to pure politics. You you can read the chart yourself. You can decide for yourself whether the promise that they are repeating that people earning less than $400,000 will not get a tax increase, where the analytical schedule shows they absolutely do, um, um, convinces you. <laughs> now, making it worse, uh, some of the revenues from these provisions and from non-tax provisions to modify Medicare prescription drug prices, which they estimate, uh, don't hold me to this, it's just something I heard, I haven't seen it yet, that they have estimated that by letting Medicare negotiate with drug companies for price increases, uh, decreases, that they will get, uh, they will save over $200 billion. Okay. So uh, now let me play, let me be fun a little bit. I'm, I'm a tax law writer. There are these people in the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee, and they're brilliant young attorneys, usually with uh, master's degrees in tax or LLMs, which is like a doctorate in law and tax, and they got their spreadsheets out and they're, they're sitting there and the, uh, the, the politicians come to them and say, write a law that does this. And uh, they're looking at each other. They've just had three hot pockets and 12 Coca-Colas trying to stay awake. And they're looking at it and said, dude, we need another $200 billion. Well, 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 well um, uh, uh, it'll be that Medicare thing. Well, well, that Medicare thing is, it's an estimate. It's a guess. It's a, well, you know, you know, who knows what the negotiation will be with, uh, with the drug companies, with Medicare. Maybe they'll come up with a 5% reduction. Maybe they'll come up with a 30% reduction. I mean, how, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. Go call Sam over at uh, ABC Economics. Sam at ABC Economics. He'll tell us anything we want him to tell him. You know, we just pay him a little fee for his study. So they call Sam at ABC Economics, and a couple of days later, he comes back and says, you're going to save $280 billion by making, uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate the price of pharmaceuticals. Okay, Sam at ABC Economics. And uh, then the Joint Committee of Taxation, they look at it, all these guys look at it. Well, well, number one objection, which I've now heard on some of the podcasts I listen to, is, uh, well, the drug companies are going to fight back. They've already got all their lobbyists lined up. You know, maybe you might say $50 billion or $100 billion, but they've said you're going to save a quarter of, a, almost a quarter of a trillion dollars, if I've read this correctly, through these negotiations of which nobody knows how it's all going to work out. Uh, uh, Donald Trump um, you know, put through some of these rules trying to get more negotiation about drug prices, he literally stood up in front of the press and said, you know, you may not see me anymore because I'm going to mandate in these negotiations. A lot of people are going to lose a lot of money from all the middlemen and the people who mark up these pharmaceuticals. And um, I may disappear, you know, uh, with the inference that he might uh, succumb to some violence now. You know, that was the, the story at the time. And he was really worried about it from what I heard from his interviews. But these guys, uh, these these uh, legislative writers, uh, you know, having their hot pockets and a bunch of Diet Coke, 
are sitting there saying, we're going to raise a quarter of a trillion dollars. So the importance of that is if they don't raise that money through Medicare uh, negotiations, uh, this thing is, is not even close to even, right? This thing, and again, one of the, the most successful lobbying groups on the face of the planet is Big Pharma, pretty much just a little bit below the military, the military uh, contractors, but okay, I'm getting a little out of tax, but it is a tax law, but it kind of isn't. Um, I did want to make that point that uh, if if they, if all these pieces don't fall together, um, you're going to end up with a very expensive bill and how that's anti-inflationary. Now well, that's my opinion. A portion of the revenue raised under this measure would be allocated to deficit reduction. Yes. If you get that Medicare savings, otherwise there's a, uh, there's not much uh, there to reduce the the deficit, but I certainly encourage that. Okay, with an agreement in place, the focus of Democratic leaders now turns to the process of ensuring they have sufficient support among the members in both chambers of Congress, and that the bill can pass muster with Senate with Senate parliamentarian. And say the parliamentarian has to rule that it's still a reconciliation bill and not a tax bill, because then it needs sixty votes. So. The parliamentarian could shut this down. Big Pharma could shut this down. People could say, you're never going to save $200 billion in uh, Medicare negotiating for drug prices. That's coming out of somebody's pocket, right? I, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it's coming out of the drug company's uh, pocket. And there's definitely going to push back on that. And so we'll, we'll have to just wait and see how this happens. Okay. The Inflation Reduction Act does not propose to increase the top corporate tax rate, which is 21%, uh, flat rate for C corporations, if you're familiar with that. But it does impose a 15% minimum tax on adjusted financial statement income for corporations with profits in excess of $1 billion. So that's great for a lot of my clients, right? They're not at $1 billion. This doesn't mean anything to them. They're at the current rates. Corporations generally would be eligible to claim net operating loss and tax credits against the AMT and would be eligible to claim a tax credit against the regular corporate tax for AMT in prior years to the extent that blah, 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 blah. They're very highly technical. won't get into that. But I do want to point out that um, they've already started to monkey with it, right? So you can say you have gap income and you have taxable income. And most of us who do this kind of work, we know the 15, 20 things that can cause differences between gap income and taxable income. That's where Congress said, no, we want to give you a faster deduction for this or that, or a deduction uh, uh, that, that will lower your taxes. And we, like I say, we work with those all the time. Now they're coming back, as I mentioned before in the prior weeks, that now they're saying, now that difference between your gap income, uh, generally accepted accounting principles, gap, financial statements, think of it as your SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, public financial statements, the, the difference between your gap income and your taxable income, that in itself becomes uh, another taxable item. Oh, but so that's complex to work with, but that's not even good enough. Finally, a new provision is included for purposes of calculating the adjusted financial statement income that makes adjustments for income, cost, and expenses related to defined benefit pensions. So it's one thing to say, well, here's my taxable income. Here's my uh, gap income. Okay, I can understand. Oh, no, now let's take that gap income, make another adjustment for certain defined benefit items 
And that's the way it will be. Now they'll keep monkeying with that. Every bill that we'll go through, oh, we found three more things. We want to adjust gap income. And uh, I have some sensitivity for that because you got to figure it out. You got to keep track of it. You got to keep track of it year to year. And um, a lot of work, a lot of work. The, the tax law should be easy, straightforward. Uh, like my understanding is in Japan, uh, their gap income is their taxable income. Boom. Because they figured out long ago, all these differences just don't amount to anything other than fees for tax preparers. And let's just take the gap income, apply a tax rate to that, and just leave it alone. And uh, their corporate tax returns are much easier than ours. Uh, so that's that's my two cents on that. Other countries also take the same view. All right, the Inflation Reduction Act proposes several changes to the carried interest rules. Okay, listen up, Bay Area investment bankers and and uh, you know venture capitalists. Uh, notably, most notably, by requiring generally the net capital gain attributable to an applicable partnership interest to be held more than five years to qualify for long-term capital gain treatment. The three-year holding period that's the current law, that went in in the Trump bill in 2017, would remain in effect for a real property trades or businesses for taxpayers with adjusted gross income less than 400000 Additional proposed changes would include some other things. So let me tell you what this is. So this is, you are like the general partner, uh, hedge fund manager, whatever, you, you, you have a partnership interest. And you say, I will take a management fee for the work I do. That's ordinary income. You get taxed on that based on regular rates, just like the rest of us. But I will also take some of my compensation in the form of, of, of um, uh, you know, uh, uh, my, my interest, my carried interest in the partnership. And two things. One, I only get taxed on that when I sell it, the carried interest. I don't get taxed on it just because it goes up in value. So that's great. And then when I do sell it and I've held it for more than one year, I get a capital gain on that, which is at lower rates, right? The capital gains uh, are at 15 and at 20%, depending on what your level of income is. There's also the uh, Affordable Care Act to tax of 3.8% that might apply, depending how active you are. So uh, that's been under attack for years. It's a great rule. I can tell you it's a great rule. It really saves these people a lot of money because the, the theory is they are the, 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 the founders, the creators, the ones that put deals together, created lots of successful companies. They deserve a capital, capital gain on their carried interest. One could argue. You could also argue, no, it should all be ordinary income. So it's been under attack. Uh, many times, and, and I recall distinctly, it was under attack like 10 years ago. It looked like it was going to disappear. That tax benefit was going to disappear. And then Senator Chuck Schumer from New York went and killed the bill. Why? Because uh, there's a lot of guys in New York City that own carried interest, and they all got their lawyers and lobbyists on the phone, and Senator Schumer killed the bill. Well, it looks like he's as a middle ground, they said, well, okay, as opposed to for capital gain, you have to hold something more than one year, more than one year. So, uh, okay, so in year two, and don't, you know, not when I say more, I don't mean like 10 minutes more. I mean, let's hold it for a year and three days, you know, not a year and one, one minute. It's supposed to be a year and a day. You can look it up. There are some very technical rules. I tell my clients, forget all that. 
hold it a year and a week. So we never get into the a discussion of whether you met the holding period rule. Well, they, they said for these carried interests, they're so good, you have to hold them for three years in order to get the lower tax rate. Okay, that was the Trump bill um, back in 2017. Now they're coming back and say uh, two things. One, you have to hold it for five years, not three years. And, um, uh, but that would apply if your uh, adjusted gross income is uh, 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 um, more than $400,000 and for certain real estate businesses. So you can be under the old rule, just be three years. If uh, you're not very wealthy, uh, over 400,000 of adjusted gross income, or if you're in some real estate deals. So there's a rule, there's, <laughs> there's a sub rule number one, which is three years. Now there's a new rule of five years, but there's two carve outs for two groups, uh, real estate and people with uh, some lower income. So uh, the additional proposed changes to this would be among other things, reform the holding period rules for purposes of measuring the three and five year period. Okay, that's straightforward. Modify the rules so that they apply to all transfers, not just and not just certain related parties. Okay, extend the, the regulatory authority under the provision to address carry waivers. So th th those get very technical. Uh, um, I won't say right at hand. I know what those is. Oh, those are. I would need to research that little bit, and I will now. In this um, bill, getting away from carried interest, but again, very important to people in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and New York, and Chicago, and L.A., carried interests are all over the place. They're not geographical. Um, they're, as we mentioned the IRS funding rule. Uh, they're going to um, not so much a, full, a, fund, a rule, but an appropriation to give the IRS more money because their headcount and their funding is uh, somewhere about the same as it was 20 years ago uh, when the country was much smaller and the law was much more uh, less complex, less complex. So they go through a whole bunch of things they're going to fund. I covered that last week. You can look it up if you want. Um, I won't go through it, but there's an interesting provision, and I'll read it right out. The proposal expressly states that the additional funds are not intended to increase taxes on any taxpayer with taxable income below 400,000. Well, what the heck does that mean? This, these, are pay, these are appropriations to help the IRS enforce the law. So, so if someone at $390,000 is cheating badly, uh, they can't use these funds to fund the audit to go after them. But if they're $401,001 of income, oh, oh, now we have the bandwidth and we'll go after that. that this is a Bad, bad thing to say in a tax bill. Tax laws are supposed to be uh, applied evenly uh, without any particular interest. It's not class warfare. It, it just, look, um, uh, it, it's literally a signal that there'll be less resources available to attack cheaters below 400,000 of adjusted gross. I, do I have never seen any statement like this ever before because it sets, it speaks to the pol the internal policy of how resources will be used within the IRS, and I can tell you they do go a long way to try to keep that secret, right? Because they don't want to tip off what you might be able to get away with, and you, and you, and you can't. So they keep internal policies pretty secret. But there's Congress saying, oh, oh, let's uh, let's use this extra money for the high end. Maybe it's just a 
uh, a political trial balloon in there, but I don't like it from a matter of tax policy. IRS should be even-handed. Bad guys, they go after. Good guys, they leave alone, uh, making a break based on uh, an income level. Um, you may disagree, but that's, that's my comment there. All right, they're going to fund some money, more money for Superfund sites. These are, these are places that were super polluted, and they have to dig them up and uh, put in new topsoil and this and that because of either petroleum uh, poisoning or uh, the nuclear waste or whatever. You can read that if that's interest to you. Uh, excise tax on certain pharmaceutical manufacturers. The uh, Schumer Mansion bill also includes an excise tax of up to 95% that would be imposed. I assume that's of their taxable income on pharmaceutical manufacturers that do not participate in the proposed mandatory negotiations with the government on Medicare prescribing drug pricings. Good luck. Good luck. These people are really sharp. They're some of the other, the smartest, biggest companies in the country, uh, Merck and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson. And, uh, you, you, so you're saying you must negotiate. And if you no, not, don't negotiate, I'm going to hit you with a excise that neither that almost really doesn't sound American. Uh, to me, I'm all for the, 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 the theory of getting prices down. Right. But, uh, the, the mechanism by which they do that should be fair. And when you say, well, if you don't negotiate with me, uh, the way I want you to, I'm going to hit you with a 95% excise tax, I assume on your profits. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. That, that sounds like a different kind of country. I'm going to leave that at that because, uh, that's getting, um, beyond just tax politics. Okay, clean energy incentives. On the incentive side, the Inflation Reduction Act includes a number of tax and non-tax provisions, according to Schumer and Manchin, that will, quote, bring down consumer energy costs and increase American energy security while substantially reducing greenhouse gas emissions, close quote. The impact of those investments, Manchin and Schumer contend, will put the U.S. on a path to roughly 40% emission reduction by 2030, close quote. Certain tax credits proposed in the legislation include a direct pay, blah, blah, that's a, just a payment rec mechanism. Okay, so uh, there's something in there about getting $7,500 for your new clean energy vehicle. Those of us who have been doing returns for years, you know, you buy a Tesla or you buy a Subaru or whatever EV, electronic vehicle, brand new. Uh, you get $7,500 in credits, but, they, but like for Teslas and Toyotas, those burned out because they, uh, not the cars, but I mean, the, uh, the, the credits were limited to only so many cars uh, under production, right? So once so many cars were sold, a million or two million, the credit was gone. It was used up. So they're bringing that back. Um, and, and that the credit is uh, more directed. I'll just read what the uh, Senator Manchin had contended. That similar incentives in the earlier iterations of the Build Back Better legislation were focused on more expensive vehicles that were intended to appeal primarily to affluent taxpayers. So you can get the seventy five hundred, even you know, on the forty five forty thousand dollar car doesn't have to be the ninety thousand dollar car or even higher. Some of them go much higher. Among the tax focused provisions are production credits to accelerate U.S. manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, and critical mi mineral processing. Yes, okay. Also included is investment tax credits to build 
clean technology manufacturing facilities that produce electric vehicles, wind turbines, solar panels, and similar clean energy property. Okay, if that's where you're at in your business, uh, we should look that up and uh, get to the specifics. I, I do want to say with regard to solar, and this is a very much near and dear to my heart. I've had clients use solar. I had solar on my house and whatever. Uh, one of the commentators, Ben Shapiro, made, a, I thought, was an astute comment. You may disagree. You may strongly disagree. But um, I thought he, he made a, a very astute uh, long-term observation. Say, look, for 40 years, 40 years, we've been giving state and federal tax credits for companies and residential use of solar power. And the solar power generation is only 3% of total energy needs at this point. So 40 years, and, you, and you've given out many hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies from taxpayers to the buyers of those solars and the solar panels, and those went to the manufacturers and the installers of the solar panels, not arguing about that, but you only got up to 3% penetration of the entire uh, use and need for, for power. So um, uh, uh, now you could say, well, that's a very good thing. Look, it's three. It's better than two. It's better than one. It's gone up. Okay, well, all right. If you're any kind of a businessman, you say, all right, well, what will it take to get to 4%? Well, we'll take to get to 5%. And now we're finding out that uh, when you take solar panels off your your house, uh, because either they, uh, they, they, they don't work anymore, those things don't work forever, they, they expire. Uh, you, they go to the dump and they have all these, uh, these uh, very specialized metals that are highly polluting. Uh, so there's a disposal issue. So uh, uh, they're being made in China or uh, uh, in Korea. I had a set from Korea, right? Uh, they're being made often under conditions that are highly polluting. You're using it. You're getting some power. I put a new roof on my house. Some of my my inverter burned out, so I priced it out. And I said, no, no. The price of a new inverter and putting holes into my new roof, it's not worth it. I'm not putting solar. I'm going back to PG&E, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric. And the other problem was PG&E. I'm going off on a rant here. Sorry. PG&E, when I put the solar panels in, would pay me $0.14 cents a kilowatt hour for power that my house created and and transferred back into the grid 14 cents a kilowatt hour remember like it was yesterday right well political things happen and then they reduced it to seven percent i said well wait a minute wait a minute i put twenty eight thousand dollars into these panels right put them in my house had the work done signed nothing the federal government sent me a check for like seven thousand dollars as a credit the state of california gave me the credit uh uh for for putting it in and now you, you change the deal by drastically reducing the reimbursement rate for excess power. It's like changing the, the, the deal and the changing, not for just new people, but for people who had to install them in the past. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a good economic deal somewhere with solar panels, but um, I just want to uh, give a little bit of a political view that after 40 years of massive government subsidies, solar is only penetrated 3% of the market. And how does it go to 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 10? I don't know. I don't know. And other issues about disposal are creeping up. So, okay, that's uh, I, I did get a little bit far afield because of some pers personal uh, experience with that. All right, there's things for farmers. There's other things to, to decarbonize the economy. Certain, it's always credits, whatever, you know, fast depreciation. 
uh, things. Um, uh, uh, that, and I, I do mention something just because I'm old <laughs> and I've seen it forever in these proposals. So I've been hearing this for, for 40 years since when Jimmy Carter was president, that we're going to make fuel out of corn and we're going to make it out of sugar beets. And those will be biofuels. We're going to be running our cars off of McDonald's grease that's collected and put in there. That's probably, that problem, I think, is, has worked pretty well, uh, uh, but you can't get enough of it. The problem with biofuels generally is it, it, it's, it's injurious, causes problems with engines. It doesn't, the, the gaskets don't uh, work quite right in the, in the camshafts, and the, there's deterioration in the combustion chambers. And so it doesn't work. Uh, it can only be certain mixtures and certain times of the year. And so I'll just say on biofuels, I'm out. I've been hearing about this since Jimmy Carter was president, and I've often heard uh, the damage they've, uh, they've done to cars and big trucks have to install whole new systems uh, in order to get this to work. Maybe they'll solve that someday, but I remain dubious, uh, as I said, about solar and, um, and biofuels. So in the bill, uh, there's uh, promoting environmental justice, promoting environmental justice. To support the goal of expanding environmental justice efforts, many of the clean energy tax credits in the bill include either a bonus rate or a set-aside for investments in economically distressed communities. I'm all for helping economically distressed, distressed communities. I would just say, again, uh, tax law is supposed to be pretty straightforward and even administered, uh, you know, blindly, you know, justice is blind. And when you start picking out winners and losers, uh, but again, uh, getting a little far afield into politics, uh, there are communities that have been distressed for decades for various, uh, uh, in some cases, racial, racial issues, uh, whether it's the right place to deal with this in a tax bill or an appropriation bill. I don't know. I don't know, but it, but it's there, it's in the bill. So uh, that's a, a short summary. There's much more in the bill. Uh, I have attached a Senate Finance Committee grid. I've attached um, uh, uh, the bill itself. Uh, you can put into your Google uh, browser to search for many detailed analysis that are in there. I am focused on uh, the issue that whether Senator Cinema from Arizona is in or out, because if she comes out and says, I'm out, the last we heard from Newsweek um, uh, and Vox, uh, those two reports, is that her office is reviewing it. But she absolutely was surprised and not in on the fact that a, an agreement had occurred between Manchin and Schumer, and that's not a good sign. But I only want what's best for everybody. Uh, I hope they come to the right result. And... Uh, so with that the summary there, uh, again, lots of good links in our show notes. Again, I'm Ron Cohen. I'm at Greenstein Rogoff Olson and Company here in Fremont, beautiful Fremont, California. I'm at 510-797-8661. I'm at extension 237. You can also go to our website, www.groco.com. Be, be sure to listen to Alan Olson's American Dream podcast. And that's uh, more than enough for this week. Please come back next week and we'll talk to you then. Thank you.